0: I am Brother Cornell West.
1: This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa
0: Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophets Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the multi-award winning social justice podcast, Newsbeat, where we shine a light on critical, underreported issues, people, and events through our unique mix of hard-hitting journalism and independent hip-hop. Now, a quick reminder up top that we've recently launched a Substack newsletter. So if you enjoy what you hear in this episode or want to know anything more about the work we do, please check us out and subscribe at newsbeat.substack.com. Not only is it free, but subscribing ensures you never miss new episodes and bonus content from the Newsbeat team. And as always, please feel free to rate us, review us, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, we're in all the places. Now we're huge fans, obviously, of the idea of criminal justice reform. I mean, we've covered America's mass incarceration crisis and many multiple aspects of the institutionalized systemic racism that continues to fuel it pretty much from our outset. Now this episode shears away the glitter and pizzazz and altruistic shine of popular, so-called bipartisan criminal justice initiatives to expose the brutal, infuriating truth that many of these are nothing more than false promises shams, smoke and freaking mirrors that support, perpetuate, and even protect and expand that very infrastructure of inequality and racism fundamental to sustaining the world's largest prison state. And of course, its horrific impact on communities of color. Breaking this all down for us are two renowned experts, Kay Whitlock and Dr. Nancy A. Heitzig co-authors of the incredibly enlightening and insanely enraging book, Carceral Con, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. I gotta say personally for myself and the rest of the Newsbeat crew, as I mentioned, we've been covering this stuff for a good long time. And this book was one hell of an eye-opener. We learned a ton. In fact, the title of their book sums up this six charade so well that we incorporated it for this episode's title. (laughs) So here it is. This is Carceral Con Job, The Bipartisan Criminal Justice Reform Swindle.
1: The prison industrial complex, as we talk about it, which is that complex network of public and private interests that benefit from and are deeply involved in supplying, promoting and constructing the criminal legal system in this country has expanded exponentially in this country, especially since the 1970s. were at a place where, in terms of incarceration in uh, the United States, we have about 4% of the world's population, and we have about 20%, perhaps a little more, of the world's incarcerated people. But even more interesting than that, the Prison Policy Initiative recently published a report in which they looked at the incarceration rates of every state in the United States. Virtually every state in the United States has a higher incarceration rate than every other country in the world.
2: To give people a context of the incredible acceleration of these rates, in 1970, there were 200,000 people in prison and jail in the United States. Today, there's 2.3 million.
1: The rate of incarceration now is about five
0: times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do.
2: There's another 7 million people who um, are under some kind of supervision in the community either via probation or other kind of pretrial interventions or on uh, parole or um, post-prison release. One in three Americans in the United States has a criminal record, which, you know, even if they aren't actively under, under supervision of the criminal legal system, they're hampered by that record in terms of access to education, employment, voting, other opportunities. So this impacts millions of people, you know has decimated communities. costs a lot of money to operate, right? 180 billion dollars you know at minimum in an annual budget to run this whole apparatus of police and courts and um, prisons and jails. And so, that's another important piece of the prison industrial complex, the money associated with this and the extent to which money is always reinvested in the system, even though money under our neoliberal austerity regime right, is really unavailable for anything else, unavailable for education, healthcare, housing, and so on. So. Yeah, it's a behemoth, and it's a behemoth that is really now a crucial part of our political economy.
1: The 13th Amendment is thought to have abolished slavery, but it actually, in a sense, solidified it with a loophole that allowed servitude to people who were convicted of crimes. This was largely used as a means to control newly freed slaves, and it has evolved into what we call today the criminal justice system. We've got a system that literally from its inception has been rooted in structural equality and has proceeded and evolved and expanded from from there, uh, gone taking things into so-called community corrections, community supervision, new processes of surveillance and so-called crime mapping and the production of vast new ways of keeping people, uh, particularly people of color, particularly poor people, under some form of, of carceral control. That is a system that, as the great carceral geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, capitalism requires inequality, racism enshrines it. What do Coke Industries, owned by the conservative Coke brothers, the ACLU, and the liberal Ford Foundation have in common? Well, usually not much, but recently they came together in a broad coalition that they say is going to invest millions of dollars in confronting criminal justice reform. They're worried about overcrowding, they're worried about innocent people behind bars, and there's probably more to it too. And one of the things that we've noticed is wherever capital wields a big stick, i.e. a big stick against worker organizing, a big stick against good pay and benefits. Wherever capital wields a big stick, the all-purpose use of prisons is more prevalent. Mm -hmm. That also means wherever inequality is deep, the use of prisons is more prevalent. So the United States is first, Russia is second, the UK is third, and so forth. What we have in the reform agendas that have been pouring forth since, really since about 2010, coming forth in a a sort of organized, brokered, philanthropy-driven way, what we have are promises and rhetoric that seem to indicate that the reforms being made will somehow correct these structural inequalities and structural forms of violence, they do absolutely no such thing. They actually re-inscribe them. But what we have then is a sort of public relations campaign convincing people to take criminal justice reforms that leave structural racism, poverty, gender violence, and ableism intact. And that's kind of the unspoken substitute for civil rights, for other forms of structural regard and equality. That's quite a con game.
2: One important point to mention that, the, the growing public discontent. Never
0: before in American history has there been an uprising like this, exactly like this, where you have huge numbers of people coming out every single day, in every single state in the country and it's particularly notable because it's almost
1: completely spontaneous. Usually big demonstrations take months of planning, publicizing, getting permits. These ones are just, yo, meet me outside in five minutes, and people are
0: there. Since starting in Minnesota after the murder of George Floyd, these protests for black
2: lives have spread like nobody could have imagined. As the public becomes more aware of both the scope of the system and the horrors within it, I mean, I'm going to say especially early 21st century, rising concern about the system and calls for reform.
0: Night after night, we've watched hundreds, even thousands of people fill this area of downtown Atlanta. We're now past curfew, so the streets are clear, but the National Guard remains. But I've spoken with dozens of protesters, Lester, who tell me this is not their first time pushing for police reform. They've done it before, some of them for years, and that, they say, is why they've had enough.
2: So a a lot of the um, impetus for reform comes from well-intended people, right, who have critiques, concerns about the system, and and also concerns about the resources that are poured into that system. So that's an important, I think, starting point. And and then what we see is really um, a hijacking of that good intention. You know, and part of the The con game then from the, you know, so-called bipartisan coalition of reform is an attempt to convince well-intended people that there are actual efforts underway that will reduce the system, will somehow, quote unquote, improve the system
1: Every
0: year, we spend eighty billion dollars $80 billion to keep people locked up. $80 billion, billion now, many of the folks in prison absolutely belong there. Our streets are safer thanks to the brave police officers and dedicated prosecutors, dedicated who, prosecutors put who put violent criminals behind bars. But, but over the last few decades, we've also locked up more non, more nonviolent offenders than ever before, for longer, for longer than ever before. That's one of the real reasons our prison population is so high. Still, much of our criminal justice system remains unfair, 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 unfair. In recent years, more of our eyes have been opened to this truth. And we can't close them anymore. We can't close them anymore. We can't
2: close them anymore.
1: President Trump today signed a sweeping criminal justice overhaul, which had rare bipartisan support. It shortens some drug sentences and expands rehabilitation programs for prisoners.
0: Today, I'm thrilled to announce my support for this bipartisan bill that will make our community safer and give former inmates a second chance at life after they have served their time. When Republicans and Democrats talk, debate, Debate
2: and seek common ground, we can achieve breakthroughs that move our country forward and deliver
1: for our citizens. Clearly, reform seeks to, it says it's responding to the concerns and the outrages. And some of the partners in reform may actually mean that. But in fact, the reforms, if you look at impacts rather than intentions over time, there are a number of problems with that. We're talking about a series of elite, brokered reforms by philanthropic, economic, political elites to address the problem. And even though these groups are framed as bipartisan, and to a certain extent they are, the real bipartisanship sort of centers around neoliberalism. The idea of free market values, of slashing any semblance of a social welfare commitment and system, privatizing public goods and resources, replacing structures of civil rights with a sort of ethic of entrepreneurism. That kind of power, that kind of elite power is always going to protect itself, even when some of the partners really halfway care about something. But the fact of the matter is that the right has, always had the sort of hand of limitation on what's possible through some of these agreements. So even the liberal centrist partners never set out, you know, whether they're NAACP, ACLU, the Center for American Progress, which I would class as as almost completely neoliberal. uh, Some of these groups, they, they care about some of the issues, but they're certainly not going to go to structural social and economic and environmental change they're not going to go for really shifting priorities in a broad public way they'll say that they're, they're working to reduce uh, disparities that they're working to reduce criminalization but if we take a look behind the scenes if we go into some of those half-truths and evasions we will find that in sentencing reforms. For example, they're pitched as sort of release mechanisms, making punishment less harsh, more fair, uh, reducing racial disparities. Sometimes, yes, but the overall impact of the sentencing reforms is nowhere near sufficient to really begin to dismantle the apparatus of mass incarceration. More than that, hidden in some of these sentencing reforms will actually be provisions that expand criminalization, that actually uh, reorganize how certain crimes are dealt with. There are ways in which the release of people or so-called diversionary programs, uh, so-called community-based alternatives to incarceration actually expand the number of people who are caught in the carceral system, many of them who have not been formally charged with a crime, but they're placed under forms of supervision where, let's say, they may have a dozen, two dozen kinds of requirements that they have to make, and there can be jailed. They can be imprisoned for all kinds of technical violations. So what we have is a system of these broad bipartisan agendas of reform that are fueled by powerful public relations campaigns and gobbled up whole and uncritically by mainstream media who just simply, in the guise of news reporting, will just report the talking points.
2: One of the key pieces of many so-called reforms, especially those that claim that they're saving um, taxpayer money or are interested in justice reinvestment, is that uh, you know money is almost always poured back into the system. It's like this continuous feedback loop. You know, and let me mention a couple of items. I mean, one is certainly police reform. George Floyd's murder sparked strong demands for change.
0: One year later, experts say police reform is sweeping through the country at an impressive
2: pace. To see things that are occurring on this level, on a national level, and also taking place not only just at the local and state level, it, it's, it's amazing, and I'll be honest, it's about time. <laughs> Lawmakers in nearly every
0: state have introduced more than 3,000 policing-related bills. More than 30 have passed new police oversight and reform laws since May 2020. Common reforms include bans on chokeholds and neck restraints, updates to use of force and de-escalation policies, and new expanded body camera policies.
1: In 2014, a white policeman killed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Brown was unarmed and shot six times. There was no video footage of the incident and no charges brought against the officer. Brown's family joined the call for all police to wear body cameras in order to hold them accountable for their actions. You see, the theory is simple. A recording camera has the power to change behavior for the better. Footage can increase transparency to the public, and in turn, it improves community trust in the police, right? Well, that's quite a heavy mission for one piece of tech. With the
2: ongoing global protests calling for police reform, more governments are turning to body cameras as a solution. Can we reform the police and what should we do, Uh, you know, body cameras, right? Was supposedly one sort of solution to police violence against the public. Everything will be recorded, you know, well, I mean, is it, you know, often not, right? We know, you know, oh, the body camera wasn't on, who controls that footage, who gets to see it? how much of that footage on a day-to-day basis is used in constructing, you know, surveillance databases of, of everyone, you know, not to mention, of course, the millions of dollars that are then invested in, you know, Axon body cams, which is, you know, owned by taser international, right? So the so-called reform feeds money, more money into the system, and actually increases surveillance and the potential for technology to be used against the public. In the post-murder of George Floyd era, recycling the discussions again about police need more training. We need procedural justice models, community policing. That's an older approach that's been, you know, cycled and recycled, you know, for decades. I always like to say that the city of Minneapolis Police Department Was part of um, an Obama era, you know, national initiative on building community trust and justice, where millions of dollars were poured into Minneapolis Police Department for training, you know, um, implicit bias, listening sessions with communities. And, you know, well, we, you know, see how effective that was. This body cam video.
0: And separately, this security video show some of the last few minutes of George Floyd's life. Stopped on suspicion of passing counterfeit money, what seems a straightforward arrest somehow devolves into this. I can breathe.
2: Please dick. The other big reform that expands the system that maybe I'll say a little bit more about are the so-called specialty courts. The most common ones are probably drug courts, but there's veterans courts and homeless courts and who, who knows what else they've imagined now. People who have not been convicted or charged with a crime are told that the charge is going to be suspended if they will go participate, you know, in drug court. All right, without a charge or a conviction, right? This is way at the beginning of the system they need to participate in all the requirements and restrictions you know so we're talking about many of the same conditions of probation um lots of expectations about reporting in expectations about employment about who you're hanging around with drug testing etc that of course you will pay for you know and this is supposedly in exchange for not being charged I mean, the the reality is, is that these are people that prior to specialty courts wouldn't be charged at all. They would just be diverted completely from the system. One of the more powerful op-eds in the New York Times that I I ever read is, it's an old one now by Michelle Alexander that's called, Go to Jail, Crash the System. And it was about the extent to which the system relies on plea bargaining, right? The negotiated guilty plea. And, and if people refuse that, the system would collapse. 90% plus of all sentences are the result of a negotiated guilty plea. The system, despite it that the millions that it churns through, is also overwhelmed and dependent upon getting people who are routed into it to plead guilty and and cooperate um, by creating these courts that now have captured and contained people who are involved in very minor criminal offenses, people who have not been charged, let alone not found guilty, who are essentially being required to comply with the conditions of probation, right? Right way, way, way at the beginning of the system.
1: We see how criminalization arises out of an intrinsically racist and economically violent system. So we can't just tweak the system and imagine that those structural factors are going to change. One of the big challenges in dismantling some of the structures that exist is to begin to shift public resources to the public good for things like housing health care public education environmental integrity and protection jobs all of those kinds of things We've developed a system where, where growing austerity, growing scarcity, the evisceration and gutting of social safety nets and basic programs that try to redistribute uh, some of the good things required for decent lives to everyone. What often gets lost in discussions of reform is the need to do that. Reform will try to convince you that it can do that, but it really can't. And it doesn't challenge austerity politics in any kind of way. It implies that somehow there will be this ability if we sort of make a smaller, smarter, fairer criminal legal system that that's going to do it. Not so. One of the things that's particularly pregnant with possibility right now is the idea of organizing in an abolitionist way across movements for social and economic justice, environmental justice, reproductive and gender justice, disability justice, all of that kinds of things. There's so much that unites all of us across these movements. You know, part of the repressive role that a carceral society, that policing and confinement play uh, in that. The, The sort of hemorrhaging of resources for social goods, while those resources are poured more and more into policing and militarization and means that try to secure a kind of social and economic stability for the elites, but wreak havoc with the lives of poor people and a growing number of people who aren't in the ranks of the impoverished now but who are constantly teetering on the edge
0: all right there you have it once again this was carceral con Job, the bipartisan criminal justice reform swindle thank you as always for listening And a huge thank you to our guests, Kay Whitlock and Dr. Nancy A. Heitzig for their incredible insights. And again, their fascinating book, Carceral Con, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform, published by University of California Press. You can learn more about author, activist, and organizer Kay Whitlock, who's been involved with racial, gender, queer, and economic justice movements since 1968. And say hello on Twitter at Kay Whitlock. That's K-A-Y Whitlock. You can learn more about author, abolitionist, and professor of sociology and critical studies of race and ethnicity at St. Catherine University, Dr. Heitzig, who's written and presented widely on issues of race, class, gender, and social control, with particular attention to the school-to-prison pipeline and prison-industrial complex. Say hello also on Twitter at N.A. Heitzig, N-A-H-E-I-T-Z-E-G. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we recently launched our very own Substack newsletter. So if you like what you heard or learned something maybe you hadn't known before, like I definitely did, or maybe you were inspired or just want to know more about the issue and the folks we talk to, please hit up newsbeat.substack.com and subscribe. It's free and it's delivered to your inbox whenever we drop a new episode or have something else important to pass along. Along with links to ucpress.edu, where you can grab a copy of their book, Carceral Khan. Our newsletter will also include links to other titles from these extraordinary writers and activists and much more. And one quick ask, don't forget, please rate and review and subscribe to the Newsbeat Podcast wherever you listen to pods. And you can also check out all of our episodes, along with our insane artwork, traditional cover stories uh, that accompanied prior episodes, extended guest and artist bios, and more at usnewsbeat.com. And be sure to also drop by our parent company, Mori Creative Studios, a purpose and mission-driven HubSpot partner agency trying to make this insane world just a little bit better, one client, and one podcast episode at a time. They're at mauricreative.com. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please feel free to email us at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. Once again, I'm Manny Faces. On behalf of the entire Newsbeat, Manny Faces Media, and Maury Creative Studios teams, thank you once again for listening. Till next time, we're out.
2: Peace.